This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to yet another episode of the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. And uh, it's always great to be here. It's always great to try to figure out what I'm going to talk about in this particular episode or that particular episode. And today, uh, I I try to uh, grab things not only from my past or things that I've experienced or you know, issues that are on my mind, but also what I'm, what I'm doing right now. And I got some inspiration for today's podcast because um, I'm playing with some buddies that I went to college with uh, at Brandeis University back in the 80s. And um, I had several bands when I was there, um, really fun bands, nothing super serious, but uh, kind of a bit radical for their time, I suppose. I was in a Pink Floyd tribute band uh, called The Aesthetic Pig that we played entire Pink Floyd albums and uh, sort of put on a grandiose show as much as we could uh, in, in our particular position at that particular time being college students. But um, the shows were fun. They were spectacles. We had uh, crazy psychedelic cartoon movies going on behind us. We had uh, uh, beautiful women in white dresses singing the parts from Dark Side of the Moon, etc., etc. And back in the mid-80s, you know, 1985-86, that was not something you saw. Today, of course, you have tribute bands. You have many Pink Floyd uh, tribute bands doing uh, gargantuan stage shows, etc., etc. Um but back then, that was kind of a unique thing, and, and I had a lot of fun with that band, and that, uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was an epic, at least for me, kind of an epic experience to play that music uh, in you know, full album format. Um, I also participated in a Led Zeppelin, you might say, tribute band um, that was called the Led Ashtray. It had several other names as well, several different members, um, but uh, I'm having a reunion concert, show, uh, jam with the members of the Lead Ashtray or some of the members of the Lead Ashtray in the next few weeks. And we just had a rehearsal. And it's the first time that we've gotten together and played together in probably about 30 years. And um, it's just going to be fun. It's going to be at a party. But um, the guys involved take it very seriously. And um, I'm, I'm excited to participate in it. And it got me, you know, really focused on John Bonham and thinking about John Bonham because we're playing a lot of great classic Zep tunes. And um, maybe a lot of you obviously know me as a swing and jazz drummer, but my I really got my start as a rocker. The very first band I was in played mostly Black Sabbath tunes. And, uh, and then that was actually when I was in junior high school. And uh, then when I was in college, I was in these sort of tribute type bands, uh, or what that's what we would call them today. And so, um, you know, it's fun for me to go back and revisit that stuff, especially since at that time, I wasn't a professional musician, hadn't put in the kind of the work and the time, the thought process that I have today, and now going back and revisiting that. And a few years ago, I was fortunate enough to be invited to play at the Bonzo Bash, and I played uh, the tune Carousel Lambra, uh, which is one of my favorite kind of epic Led Zeppelin tunes at the Bonzo Bash. I have a video of it that I'll link to in the show notes, um, 
was really fun for me to play on a real Zep sized, you know, kit, anatomically correct Led Zeppelin, uh, John Bonham style drum set, and to play with guys that are like really the masters that play in the very best Led Zeppelin tribute bands. And uh, to be able to play that nine minute epic tune from Into the Outdoor was, was a great, exciting moment for me. And so I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about John Bonham. And of course, you know, people have lionized John Bonham. He is such an icon now that it, it's, it's, it's almost hard. You know, what do you say that hasn't already been said about John Bonham? But I, I have some thoughts, particularly because, you know, he's that kind of drummer of which there are so few that has just transcended generation after generation. So young people today love John Bonham, understand, get what he's about, totally dig it. Um, you know, people of my generation uh, who came of age in the 70s, um, and people of an older generation who were around in the 60s when Led Zeppelin first emerged. And it seems that, you know, John Bonham's one of those drummers that everyone agrees upon is just worthy of, of you know, the title that many lay upon him, which is the greatest rock drummer of all time. Now, I'm, I don't get into the greatest this or the most that or the best this or any of that kind of stuff. But certainly, it is, I think, worth it to take a look at John Bonham a little bit more deeply and to try to figure out what it is you know, that makes him great, or it's sort of obvious what makes him great. He's a thunderously powerful rock drummer. Um, and, and when you listen to his playing, it instinctively grabs you and moves you. But I, I think a lot of people, you know, claim, well, they love John Bonham, they want to play like John Bonham, they want to sound like John Bonham, but they're not perhaps really paying attention uh, to what's going on. Or maybe their their analysis, you know, doesn't run very deep. And I've been a big fan of John Bonham for so many years now. I've been listening to him uh, and, and trying to understand it from my, you know, historian's viewpoint in many, many different ways, his influences and how that affected the way he played and also how the way he played and the sound he got of influences us today. But I, I would like to break things down. Obviously, you know, you could spend weeks and many multiple podcast episodes talking about Bonham, but I, I really want to talk today and sort of, I've, I've sort of said, broken this down as, you know, five, uh, you know, five reasons why you should love John Bonham, or five things that maybe you didn't know about John Bonham. Um, and try to offer some perspective on John Bonham that might, you, might get you thinking about him in, in some different kinds of ways. And so I'm just going to jump right in. Well, before I should do that, I, I need to give a bit of a disclaimer that I would love to, I'm going to talk about a lot of Led Zeppelin songs and John Bonham drum parts in this podcast, and unfortunately, I'm not able to play those. On some of my earlier podcasts, I was playing licensed music, but uh, drummer's resource policy and the, the policy of the internet essentially is that, you know, you could get into trouble if you play licensed music, especially music as well known as Led Zeppelin. So what I'm going to do is sort of sing these parts or tap these parts out for you um, to explain the particular points that I'm making, and then I encourage you to go listen to the original Led Zeppelin tracks themselves that I'm talking about. I think you might find that you'll hear certain things in new different, new or different ways or think about Bonham in a different way. That's my hope after listening to this podcast. So to jump right in, um, reason number one that, you know, you, you should love John Bonham or reason number one that 
that you may not know about John Bonham, and that is that he could swing. He was reared on swing and jazz and music, other kinds of music that swung. Now, maybe this doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, so what? A lot of, you know, a lot of people were uh, influenced by swing. But the reason that I bring this point up and the reason I bring it up first is that, you know, if you want to play like John Bonham, if you want your drum beats to move like John Bonham's, or if you want to have that John Bonham swagger, then you can't ignore the influences uh, that were upon him uh, that he that he was studying as a young drummer, and how he brought and introduced those influences into what he created with Led Zeppelin. And so, just a, a small bit of history, and, and again, there are probably many people out there listening who know more about John Bonham than I do or know more of the particulars and the details of his life. And we can't get to everything here, but essentially he grew up in the Midlands of England, and he, like so many others of his generation, of that time, of the British musicians that came of age in the early, middle, and late 60s, uh, grew up after World War II. And um, they were greatly influenced by American music because uh, America had one essentially helped England to win World War II, had swept in two years after the war had started, um, and used England as a base from which to, uh, you know, make the assault on Normandy in France, cross the English Channel, and then begin the assault uh, into the uh, continent of Europe to stop the Nazis. And uh, so there was a lot of American-British interaction uh, during and after World War II. And of course, after World War II, England was absolutely devastated as a country. And all the children born into this time were, um, you know, were, were uh, uh, born essentially into, into very dark, bitter times. People were living in poverty. People did not have a lot. The country had been destroyed by, by Nazi bombing. And so, what American music represented for those kids growing up was was something tremendous. There was the radio station Voice of America, and uh, there was American swing and jazz music all around. Uh, the soldiers uh, were were playing it. Uh, they were listening to records by uh, big bands of the 1930s and and 40s, and then of course bebop was coming in, and then within you know by the mid 50s rock and roll was coming in, and so obviously. There, there being the same language, uh, it was easy for Brits to understand American music, just understand the words, to appreciate, uh, appreciate things culturally. And um, out of this, you know, emerged not only the Beatles and the Stones, but of course Led Zeppelin. So John Bonham grows up in this environment, and indeed his idols uh, were, you know, people like Gene Krupa and Max Roach and Buddy Rich, uh, like. Many of the boys all over the world, or and girls growing up, uh, young budding drummers, uh, were inspired by the power of those of those guys. They had great chops, they had great sound, and they were swing drummers. They all played with a swing feel. And um, I believe the first time that Led Zeppelin played Carnegie Hall, you know, Bonham was ecstatic because he was on the same stage as Gene Krupa, who had been say, the first jazz, uh, as part of the first jazz band to play at Carnegie Hall back in 1938 with Benny Goodman. And so it, it's, you know, it, it, it pays to understand that Bonham was influenced by these people. And why? Well, let's talk about some specific examples of Bonham's 
where he turned that around, used that in his own playing. And uh, I would say the first most important example, which I cite constantly, is the intro to um, rock and roll uh, from Led Zeppelin IV. And on that, Bonham, you know, almost note for note, uh, copies the intro from the Little Richard song, Keep a Knockin'. And uh, I actually, if you go to my website, I have a whole, uh, what I call the Drum History Minute, where I talk, literally, I A-B the two songs back and forth, um, uh, Keep a Knockin' and Rock and Roll. But it's this sort of two-handed part, and it and it's a straight eighth groove, but it has some swing to it. You know, and rock and roll is almost one of the most iconic Led Zeppelin songs, and yet the feel for it comes straight out of a Little Richard song from 1956. So, again, if you want to play the song rock and roll correctly, um, give a listen to to uh, the Little Richard song and understand how that swings. Um, a good example of, you know, uh, in in a few years back, uh, the uh, the band the Foo Fighters did a big huge concert at the O2 Arena, or maybe it was at Wembley in the UK. And at the end of the show, they brought up uh, John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, and they proceeded to play rock and roll. And for that tune, Taylor Hawkins, the drummer, came out front and sang. Dave Grohl ran out, ran back, and played the John Bonham part. And if you listen to the way that Dave Grohl plays it, yeah, you know, it's not as swinging as the way that Bonham played it. And indeed, the way that Charles Connor, uh, who played it on the original Little Richard record, the way that he played it. So it, you know, if you want to play like Bonham, listen to what Bonham was listening to, and that will help you to play like Bonham better. Another example that I always cite of of why it's important to understand Bonham's influence of of earlier styles of music and of particularly music that swings or music that swung is when the levee breaks. Now I always ask my students, you know, to sing me and and I'm. I'm, I do this in the, very early on, usually the first lesson, when I'm showing what I call the throw-up exercise. And I talk all about the throw-up exercise, which has to do with pulse and creating a particular kind of pulse that has been at the heart of, of all of American popular music and, and that music that has spread throughout the world, uh, whether it's jazz or swing or rock, is this sense of pulse that has forward momentum, meaning it's danceable, meaning it makes you move, but at the same time, it's laid back. And this particular pulse, I did an entire podcast about this and demonstrate it, talk about it, but it is at the heart of pretty much every kind of American music from early jazz all the way up to hip-hop. This idea of forward momentum, but also being laid back, which really is two contradictory things, so it's a bit confusing. How do you achieve, how do you make something have forward momentum, but also make it feel laid back? So in making this point, I play when the levee breaks for the student. And before we even do that, I say, well, I play it for him. And then I say, okay, sing for me what you just heard. So, of course, the student goes, right? The most obvious thing, the kick and snare pattern, the quote-unquote melody of that groove. However, go back, I tell them, and listen to the hi-hat. And when you listen to the hi-hat and the way that Bonham played the hi-hat, it captures this exact pulse forward momentum, laid back at the same time. If you play when the levee breaks and you have the kick and snare pattern right and you don't have forward momentum, 
you're not playing it right. It is not going to feel like John Bonham. And it's hard because people think, oh, hi-hat, I just play eighth notes. What's the big deal? Hit it and quit it. I don't have to think about it anymore. Well, if you're not thinking about the hi-hat and the way the hi-hat moves, the way it drives against the kick and snare, which is very heavy and laid back, you're not going to have that push-pull that makes when the levee breaks such a powerful groove and such a powerful song. So go and listen to When the Levee Breaks and just listen to Hi-Hat. And by the way, the Hi-Hat is so important in that song that it is on top of the mix the entire way from start to finish. Uh, that's how important the, the feel of the Hi-Hat is to, to driving that song along. So again, because Bonham was raised in England at a time when American music was very uh, uh prominent and important to his generation. Probably his first lessons that he took or his first influences that he had or the people that showed him things were showing him jazz patterns because at the time, say in the 40s or the early 50s when he was uh, young and, uh, you know, just just uh, becoming aware of this stuff and becoming aware of drums, there was no rock and roll teacher because there was no rock and roll. Rock and roll was barely just being defined as a genre or as a style uh, in and of itself. So music that swung was still the dominant force. All right? A couple other examples. Um, Bonham could play an amazing shuffle. Now, this is, um, you know, uh, maybe not news to people, but most rock drummers today can't shuffle to save their lives. Most rock drummers of the 1960s of Bonham's era could shuffle very well. Why? Because they grew up listening to swing music and they understood how to make that music move. And that meant not only playing a swing style feel, but playing a great shuffle. And of course, the, the, the sort of a premier example of this is uh, how many more times uh, from, I believe, the very first Led Zeppelin record and uh, there's a terrific clip that I wrote a whole Facebook po post about uh, from 1969. It's a live clip. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, Plant starts off by introducing the whole band, and it's, it, you know, how many more times? And at the beginning of the tune, they started off quietly. It almost feels like it could be a jazz tune or it could be a shuffle like Green Onions. And it swings beautifully. And again, you, see, you hear in Bonham's, just the quarter notes he's playing on the ride, he is capturing that essence of swing, that essence of forward momentum, yet it's laid back. It's hip. It's cool. It's not nervously driving. It's got, it, it sits down. And it feels a lot like a jazz tune. It feels a lot like maybe Freddie Freeloader or a tune like Green Onions, right? Other examples of Purdy shuffling, great. He did it all through Led Zeppelin's career. Down by the Seaside, uh, a song on uh, physical graffiti. Um, amazing Great shuffle, super laid back and just super in the pocket. It has that all the characteristics of a great Bonham groove, but it just sits there perfectly, beautifully in the pocket. You know, he was obviously very comfortable, as comfortable playing a shuffle as he was other kinds of straight eighth type of grooves. And of course, Bonham's most famous version of a shuffle that that was borrowed from another shuffle is. Um, uh, oh God, da, 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 da. full in the rain, right? And that is the Bernard Purdy shuffle, the Purdy shuffle, which Bonham got from Bernard Purdy. 
when Bernard Purdy played that uh, on Steely Dan Records in the late 70s, most particularly Home at Last and Babylon Sisters, which is where that shuffle, Purdy's shuffle, really came to the fore and was beautifully featured on those records. Not only, you know, Bonham was influenced by that, um, people like Jeff Procaro were influenced by that, and Jeff uh, played it on his uh, tune on the Toto song Rosanna at a much faster tempo, of course. But, um, you know, it, it, Bon, that is, you got to have your, you know, that's not an easy groove to play. And a lot of drummers have, have tried and failed or have no idea what he's doing there. Um, so, again, influences of the past. Uh, if you want to play like Bonham, and I'm going to give you a lot of examples of, of, of Led Zeppelin songs that you might play in your Led Zeppelin tribute band, or if you want to get into a Led Zeppelin tribute band, you better know how to play this stuff, you know. And by the way, these feels are not, you know, John Bonham popularized a lot of them, but they are rampant throughout the music of the 60s and the 70s. Shuffles, swing feels, um, you know, early rock and roll type stuff that's sort of half swung and half straight. So these feels were not just played by John Bonham, but they are everywhere. And so my message always is to drummers, the more that you know about shuffles or swing feel, the more you can be successful as a rock and roll drummer or a reggae drummer or a blues drummer or, you know, um, uh, you know, all, all these different styles of music have this classic ele- these classic elements in them. And one other aspect that I want to talk about, the fact that he could swing, but really goes beyond it, that talks about his influences, is in Bonham's solo style. Um, I'm just going to give you two examples. But of course, his, his famous signature um, you know, uh, song that he, that he soloed on was Moby Dick, right? And, and we all know that song. Um, but interestingly, the two, two of the primary elements that Bonham were always included in Bonham's solos were, first he would begin by when the band would fade out and he would go into the solo, he would start with eighth notes on the hi-hat, and he would then proceed to play all these kind of jazzy triplet triplet ideas and he would jam on that for a while now interestingly i don't think most rock drummers today would start a solo by playing a whole lot of triplet ideas those are ideas that maybe a jazz drummer would begin their solo with and yet that's how bonham would start you know, usually would start his solo or get into the into the beginning of his solo. Um, you know, another of his influences uh, we already mentioned was Max Roach. Uh, Max Roach had a lot of sort of uh, um, he wrote solo pieces that were motifs. So he had one called the drum also waltzes, uh, which was this sort of three four feel. You hear elements of that in. Bonham solo. He also had a solo called One for Big Sid that had this kind of riff in it. You hear elements of that in Bonham's solos. So you could tell that Bonham did a lot of listening, not only to the swing guys, but also to the bebop guys, the jazz guys. And as Bonham usually moved forward in his solo, one of the next things he would do is he would play with his hands. And I think for a lot of people, when I was a kid and I saw the song remains the same for the first time in the late 70s or around 1980 maybe, I was, I was really impressed. Wow, this guy's playing with his hands. That's so cool. Well, guess what? John Bonham 
by a long shot, was not the first drummer to play with his hands. And um, it is often said that his inspiration for the work that he does with his hands, of course, he's very physical about it, but uh, Joe Morello uh, in the early 1960s with the Dave Brubeck Quartet uh, and with others would often uh, play with his hands during his solos. And it's well documented that um, that Max or that uh, John Bonham was influenced by Joe Morello. So again, you know, you want to play like Bonham, you want to solo like Bonham, check out what John Bonham was was checking out. And that will help you to dig more deeply into, uh, into uh, you know, playing like Bonham. Now, point number two uh, as to why it's important to love Bonham and what you might not realize about Bonham. And this one is so obvious, it's in front of our faces, yet most people don't think about it. And that, of course, is his gear, right? Let's talk for a minute about Bonham's gear. Now, you know, so many drummers want to get that Bonham sound, right? So what do they do? They go into the studio and they, you know, have a 22-inch bass drum that they've stuffed a bunch of pillows into. They put a mic on every single drum uh, and then, you know, they wail away and they go, why don't I sound like John Bonham? Well, how about we start by looking at a photo of John Bonham for about four seconds, and you will instantly realize that, first of all, Bonham did not put any kind of muffling in his bass drum, or if he did, it was a very, very small amount. The drum was wide open. It was a big drum. Again, hearkening back to the swing era. Gene Krupa played 26, 28-inch bass drums. All the bass, all the drummers of that period plays, played that size of drum. Another thing you'll notice after four seconds of looking at a picture of John Bonham's drum set is that he had no hole in the front head. It was not vented. That's what we call a hole in the front head. The drum had no venting. It was a practically a military marching style bass drum. And I want to read you a quote I have a book that uh, I put together with Steve Smith, the legendary Steve Smith, called The Roots of Rock Drumming. And the book is a collection of interviews with 23 of the sort of the legends and the pioneers of rock drumming. And our very last interview in the book is with Jim Keltner, who, although he was not there at the beginning of rock, really uh, saw a lot of the pioneers of rock, was influenced by the pioneers of rock, and then himself took uh, their... Um, all of these uh, influences and use that in creating his own legendary legacy of, of important drum parts as a studio drummer. So in the interview, and Steve Smith did this particular interview, but in the interview, uh, Steve talks about, um, you know, many different drummers and what Jim Keltner's experiences were with these drummers. So the question is, let's touch on some of the other great English rock drummers. How about John Bonham? And... Um, so Keltner replies thusly. He says, again, what do you say about John Bonham that hasn't already been said? I could say that I saw his first gig in the United States. I was at the Fillmore East playing with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. That was an all-star band with Eric Clapton. The Fillmore East was run by legendary promoter Bill Graham, and Bill put on the most eclectic kinds of shows. They were wild. This one night we opened up, and then it was Mountain. So, so we opened up, Delaney and Bonnie. Then it was Mountain, Woody Herman's big band, followed by Led Zeppelin. Now that is a weird bill, but what a night, man. I got to stand in the wings and watch Bonzo play with Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin's first gig in the United States. I didn't know who Led Zeppelin or Bonzo were, but earlier in the day, I had tapped on his bass drum backstage while I was where it was set up in the dark. It was huge compared to mine. I had a 22-inch bass drum, and this was a 26, I think. 
wide open, no hole in the front head or anything like that. Just boom. It lasted forever. I said, what is this, a marching band, a Salvation Army kind of thing? Who's going to play this? And then those guys came out and played, who knows what they played. We were just glued to the wall, completely blown away. To hear Bonzo for the first time live and to be that close, just like from here to that wall, was unbelievable. And after that, he just took over the world, right? So there you go. Um, I'm not making this up, <laughs> all right? I got it from the horse's mouth, Jim Keltner, who was there at, at the first Led Zeppelin show. And so a couple of other things, if you want to get that Bonham sound, and, and you know, a big 26 bass drum is a lot of drum to handle. And part of the reason why Bonham sounded so great on that drum is because he hit it so hard. Now that, you know, is, uh, has to do with uh, genetics and how he was designed. But what I could tell you about the power of a 26 open bass drum is that, you know, if you think about the swing bands back in the 1930s, and you see photos of these bands playing in halls that held, you know, thousands of people, literally, uh, 7,500 people, 10,000 people, some of the bigger halls like the Palladium in LA or the Savoy Ballroom in New York City or the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. These, helped these, these, these were essentially rock concerts and people were dancing. But remember, in the 1930s and 40s, you had no amplification. The guitars were not yet amplified or the basses. The, uh, there were no microphones on the band. So how was a drummer with a 26-inch bass drum going to uh, you know, fill up the room, get the last person at the end of the room, that 7,500th person dancing, feeling the time. And they very effectively worked these big drums with very little or no muffling in them and no venting. And with the combination of the bass, the guitar, the piano, and the drums, and all those different frequencies, they would move the air. They would literally move the air. And I didn't really believe this until a few years ago at the Chicago Drum Show. I did a tribute to Gene Krupa, and I, I had DW create for me a, um, a, a replica, almost an exact replica of what Gene Krupa's kit would have been like at that time. And I got an email about a week after the event from a guy who said, I was sitting about 30 rows back from your clinic and I could feel your bass drum. I could feel your bass drum, not hear it. Well, probably you could hear it too, but I could feel it. And to me, that's the magic that we in some ways have lost today by stuffing everything and muffling these drums up so much that, and then leaving it to an engineer to add reverb or to create echo or to add effect after the fact. And at the late 60s, the technology was just still not that, you know, advanced as it is today that, that, that a band like Led Zeppelin, when they first emerged, it was just raw. It was just the four guys and the sound they created. And so Bonham really took those lessons from somebody like Gene Krupa. He probably heard a lot of these kind of bass drums. And he just brought that along with his incredibly powerful Paul Bunyan-like swing. You know, every time he hit the drum, wham, like, you know, just hitting it with so much force. So that's how, you know, that great Bonham bass drum sound is, is achieved.
Now, a couple of other things about Bonham Sound that you should think about if you want to go for it, and this this one's a little interesting. I remember reading the book The Hammer of the Gods, which was uh, when I was a kid in the 70s, was sort of, or maybe it was the 80s at this point, was the you know sort of the ultimate Led Zeppelin biography. There are probably better biographies written now that are more uh, authoritative, but this was a great book, and I remember um, you know Jimmy Page, who was the guitar player, of course, in Led Zeppelin. He was truly the wizard behind Bonham's drum sound. Uh, he had produced all of Led Zeppelin's records, or just about every one, and he was, you know, he had been along with John Paul Jones, a, a very heavyweight studio musician in England before joining the Yardbirds and then and then creating Led Zeppelin. So he was very savvy to studio uh, recording techniques, not just for guitars but for all the instruments. And they experimented a lot with Bonham's sound. And one of the things they did to the kit, at least according to this book, was they. They lined the inside of Bonham's bass drum with a uh, silver foil, tin foil, and supposedly that enhanced um, the brighter, the brightness allowed for more reflection of the sound, enhanced the sound coming off the drum. Now, maybe you think this is bunk. I don't know if this really worked or not. I don't even know if it really happened or not. I remember reading about it, and maybe there are some Led Zeppelin authorities out there that can verify this or not as to whether it actually happened. But what's interesting is you got to remember that Gretsch round badge uh, drums, which are the most, you know, were the most desirable drums for jazz drummers and, and are still today by many. But in the 1950s and 60s in particular, the, the Gretsch round badges were really hot. What did they do with those drums? They sprayed the interior with silver paint. Uh, again, um, you know, I think with the idea that it improves the acoustic quality of the sound of the drum. Again, is this a gimmick? I don't know. Ludwig did the same thing when, when Ringo took off in the 60s. Um, Ludwig drums were painted white, and they had some official name like a, acoustic core or something like that, and it was one of the selling points. Now, I know, you know, it, that literally they were probably just slopping white house paint on there because they, they were, the when Ringo became you know, the Beatles took off. The Ludwig factory, Ringo, of course, played Ludwig. Uh, Ludwig became so popular that the Ludwig factory for a time was literally open three shifts a day. They were making drums 24 hours a day because the demand was so great. And that's when they were using the white paint. But the Gretsch, uh, the classic Gretsch drums have this silver paint on the inside. So maybe there is something to that. And maybe Bonham had experienced Gretsch drums or Jimmy Page had seen them. And that's what they were trying to imitate. So, um, the last point I want to make about Bonham's sound that, again, you may not be that aware of, is that they didn't use a lot of microphones. Uh, they did not mic every single drum. They were more concerned with the space. And, of course, uh, there's, you know, the, the legend about uh, where they recorded a lot of the classic uh, albums, especially uh, Led Zepp IV, um, were, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think, is it Brunior? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, so forgive me. Um, but this, this, this magical uh, Welsh, I think, uh, uh, castle or, you know, where they, where they would uh, uh, set up and did a lot of their quintessential recording, at least during that period of the early 70s. And, um, you know, the, the, they set up Bonham in the, like, the main room, of of the of the of the estate, they didn't even put him in a drum room or an ISO booth, and they tried. To, they placed the mics in different spots, some that were close, some far away, and you know they didn't have, like I said, that many ways to alter the sound after it was created. So they 
they worked more with the space and work with the space. And part of Bonham's huge drum sound comes from not having the mics so close, but having the mics farther away uh, to capture more the sound of the space so that the intense sonic, uh, you know, boom that he was creating, so to speak, they were capturing that, you know, in more of the room sound. So it was for bon the Bonham sound, in addition to the, the size of the drums and the the tuning of the drums and the lack of muffling and the lack of vent holes in the bass drum and maybe the silver foil uh, and the, the mic placement. It was all about the space, all about the space. So if you want to sound like Bonham, think about it that way. All right, we're about 35 minutes into this podcast, and I just realized I'd only made two of the five points that I have to, uh, to address. And I have a feeling with what I have coming up, uh, where I'm going to more specifically dig into the parts themselves that John Bonham played and why these parts are so uh, important to learn about and, and epic and why we'd want to get to know them better so we can imitate them in our own playing. Um, I'm probably going to go way, way over time with this podcast. So I'm going to split this into two parts. Um, part two of Reasons to Love John Bonham uh, is really going to dig into the actual parts that he played, the musical parts, and you know what was so important about that. Really dig into a deeper analysis. So, if you'd like more insight into drum history and all the evolutionary stuff that I talk about, evolution of music, of course, in general, uh, don't forget to follow me on my Facebook music page, which is Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. I post a lot of cool old videos there. Uh, of course, you can always contact me, shoot me an email uh, from Daniel at uh, Daniel at DanielGlass.com or off the Facebook page or right here on Drummer's Resource. So that's it, and I hope you have a great day. Keep swinging, and we'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. Resource.